giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Ellen Chisa, CEO and co-founder of Dark. Ellen, thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is Dark? Dark is Paul, my co-founder, and I's attempt at making it radically easier to build software. We were both really excited about building software ourselves. We both enjoyed building other products. And when we sat down to think about building new things, we thought, this is still way too hard. How could we make it much better? And one of the things we kept coming back to is just how difficult it is right now to get good distributed systems infrastructure set up. And so we built Dark, which is a way to build your backend and have the infrastructure set up as you go. It's funny, when we started, Paul and I started from a very nebulous product area to begin with before really narrowing down on what specifically we wanted to build. I believe you should always fall in love with the problem, not the solution to the problem. And so one of the big things was just how much time we spent doing things that wasn't actually about shipping product code when we were writing code. So that's everything from you sit down and you want to build something new and two hours later you're finally at Hello World and you're tired from having set everything up and you don't actually build it. Or I've seen this a bunch now where you go to hackathons, which is supposed to be a place to experiment with code, and you see people more making like business plans or pitches or things that are startups but not actually getting to write software because it takes too long to get into the meat of a project. Or even once you're going, I was a product manager for a long time, and I'd end up in this world where I'd get my environment configured, I'd be able to ship small parts of code, I was excited to be contributing, I would get pulled down some other rabbit hole for two weeks, I would come back and my environment would be completely hosed because I didn't have the latest dependencies or some part of our tooling had changed, and then I would feel really bad spending an entire day getting back up to speed just to have the same thing happen again two weeks later. And when did you first decide to do this? Yeah, we've been doing this for about a year and a half now. We started working together in April of 2016. What's the current stage of it right now? Yeah, so currently, uh, it's really fun. We're actually, we're a team of seven now. So five to six engineers, depending on if you want to count me as an engineer or not. I write a lot of code in the product, but not for the product. And we're at the point where we've had a couple of people ship their actual companies on top of the platform and some friends who've built projects as well. So actual product that works. Wow, that's incredible. Congratulations. It's been really fun. Thank you. So how can people try it? That is the thing about building a complete platform from programming language for the ground up. We're very careful about letting people on board just because we want to make sure that everyone's having a great experience when they use it. So the best way to get to try it is if you go to darklang.com, you can join the MailChimp list, which is the sign up for beta. But if you leave a comment specifically saying you heard me on this podcast and what you want to build, I can promise you'll get a personal email from me and we'll figure out if it's a good fit for what you're trying to do. Oh, that's cool. Is any of it open source? So no, it's not open source under the hood right now. And so when you really think about that, there's so many moving pieces when you're basically compiling infrastructure in real time that if we let some of those underlying pieces change, we wouldn't necessarily be able to guarantee we'd keep the infrastructure up. And so there are a lot of things we really align with around open source, but right now the underlying platform isn't something we can do that for. Do you plan on doing anything with open source in the future? So things we are really excited about, since Dark is a programming language, you can build things in Dark and you can basically build functions or modules or pieces of code that people would be able to reuse. And we're really excited about building a bunch of things in the platform that we would open up for people and let developers build things that they can open up as well. So that's definitely the thing that would be happening first. So when do you think Dark will be available for the general public? 
Yeah, I think we're still a ways out from that, simply because when you think about what people are trying to build and some of the other challenges platforms of this type have faced, if you end up with one customer who has a runaway product, you're suddenly devoting all of the resources just towards supporting that, and you can't support the rest of your customers effectively. Or the flip side, you support the rest of the customers, and then you have to let everyone churn out the top, which is a bummer too. Um, So I think at this point, we're still looking at private beta for the next year or so. So what does your current team look like? So currently there are seven of us. It's myself. I do kind of all the things you would expect. A lot of being on podcasts and talking to people and getting people excited about what we're doing. But for a long time, my entire job was hiring more people for our team, making sure we have money in the bank to pay salaries, and then actually spending a lot of time helping to break things down and figure out what projects we can do in which order to unlock the platform for more customers. Um, Then my co-founder, Paul, is really great, has amazing technical vision compared to a lot of people for how some of these pieces fit together, but also just really enjoys writing code and being an engineer and commits to our code base, I think every single day, pretty much. And then we have four more engineers, one of whom has strong overlap with design. I've heard people call them design engineers or UX engineers. She was an engineer and then decided to move towards design later in her career. And then we have Steffi, who really does a lot of other things related to kind of people support, keeping the office going. And it's just one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. So there's a lot going on with Dark. So what is the stack that you're actually building Dark in? Yeah, this has been super interesting too. So our backend is all in OCaml. And we picked OCaml, which is a pretty uncommon language because it has a lot of overlap with some of the concepts that are in the Dark language. Dark is a programming language and the language itself is functional and has those similarities. And then for a long time, we were building our front end in Elm, which had some similar aspects to it. Elm was also a functional front end framework. But recently we migrated ourselves from Elm to BuckleScript, which is OCaml bindings for JavaScript. And so that gives us a lot of overlap between our front end and our back end. And we actually did open source our Elm to OCaml compiler, which is called Philip 2. I know you kind of answered this up top, but why did you, in order to solve this problem, create an entirely new programming language? Sure. We spend a lot of time talking about, did Dark have to be a programming language? And where does this whole programming language component come from? And I think one thing to keep in mind is that programming languages are in themselves products. Like you can make a language for fun and for research, but a lot of the time you make a programming language to solve a specific problem. And then it's something that developers actually use to do their work. So I always think of the programming language as being a product. And like any good product, it has to justify its existence in the problems it's solving. And so a big part of that for us is a lot of the conventions around how we think about languages and how we think about software development come from a long time ago when we were writing software for one microcontroller or one machine, even one server. And we weren't really thinking about the distributed nature of computing and how it is now. And so when we started looking at how tooling had changed, people were making a lot of assumptions that came from historical things. And we said, to get all of the cool benefits of good distributed infrastructure, we should be able to access them directly from our language rather than having them as products that are kind of bolted on on top of the core programming system. And how have things gone so far? Yeah, actually. So the beginning, I thought, went shockingly well. I think it's always a little bit scary to say we're going to be building this complete system from scratch. I think... Anyone who's been a PM will tell you when you're saying my product solves the problems of these four other things at once, that seems a little bit daunting. And so I think at the beginning, we really approached it in much more of a way where we would come up with a hypothesis and then test it. So early versions of the programming language were very based on a graph. And one of the things we learned pretty quickly is when you say graph, people automatically assume graphical, automatically assume visual, automatically assume you're like dragging, dropping widgets around, and it doesn't really feel like a programmer tool. 
And so as we evolved that over time, we got much closer to the product we have now, which is much more of a structured editor. So there's still a lot of underlying concepts that align to a graph, but it feels a lot more like what you would expect conventional text editing to feel like. Has the scope and timeline evolved over the course of working on Dark or where you're at now? Is that pretty much where you hope to be? I think founders for sure are definitely on the optimistic side. I think you have to be a little bit optimistic to say, I'm going to start this thing from scratch and have it work. Uh, And I think actually engineers are the same way. We're always saying, oh yeah, it's fine. I'll have that done in a couple hours. And I think there is this bias towards aggressive estimating for many of us. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a couple of hours can turn into a week or more. For sure. That's how all of my software projects go. Um, And so from when we started, I think actually the biggest thing we misestimated on was hiring timelines and how much goes into finding the right people who are excited about the mission, who add a distinct skill set to your team, who bring a different perspective to the table and all of that. So I think at the beginning, we were saying, oh, we'll just hire seven people in a month because we're optimists. And that's the sort of thing where it takes a lot longer to thoughtfully build a team that works well together. On the product side, I think it's still pretty close with some changes. So I think originally we had actually planned to build a bunch of things ourselves and ship them before we allowed any customers to use the platform. And then we brought a lot of our friends in and a lot of other engineers we hadn't known in to make sure we were getting real feedback to look at that. And we got so much good feedback that it became really important to us to be building side by side with other developers early. And so we actually hired our first customer and paid him a monthly stipend, nothing like an engineering salary, nothing like an incubator, didn't take anything from him. And he came in and built in our office every single day and we could watch him in real time and get that feedback. And we did that before shipping a ton of different things ourselves. And I think that shift in the timeline helped us really understand which things resonated for customers in addition to for us, because we're all the sort of people who wanna sit around and talk about how programming language works all day. So they were almost like a full-time, real-time user tester? Yeah, exactly. We call them an entrepreneur, engineer, and residence. I would definitely do it again. I'd never had to do that on a consumer product because you can just say, hey, try it out for an hour. But with a programming language, being able to get someone's perspective in like the first five minutes, the first hour, the first day, the first month was really helpful. So going back for a second, you were talking about team building and how it's much more of a complicated task to, say, hire the seven right people than just hire seven people. What kind of values have you gone about structuring into the company and then having that make sure it's reflected in the people that you're looking into hiring? Yeah, we were really intentional about this from the beginning. I used to work for Paul English at Lola, and one of the things he was fond of saying was that your culture isn't what you put on the wall, it's what people actually do every day. And I think one way to do that is to hold yourself honest to doing the things you want to do or you say that you're going to do. And so very early on, there were only four of us at the time we sat down and really wrote down what we valued as individuals and as a team and built that into our value set for the company, which I actually go through with every single candidate in the very first phone call, because we want to make sure we're spending time with people who share the values and how we work. And what kind of values have you set forth? So the first one makes a lot of sense with the the customer we had in for a long time, and that's we care about doing work that's impactful. I think particularly being in this space of working with a new programming language, it's easy to get wrapped up in the technical concepts or in experimenting or in going, this could be the new cool thing. And I think a lot of people have done great work in that space, but we wanted to make sure we were doing work that would move the needle forward for our customers and for the company. Then the second one, which is really important to me, is to be decisive. I feel like 
too often you'll set things up and people will be waiting on someone else to make a decision or they'll be worried about doing something wrong or there might be repercussions. And I think it's much more important that we've hired smart people and we've put them in the room and they can make a good decision. And if it doesn't end up being the right one, we'll figure out how to roll it back as a team together. And so the corollary to decisive then is collaborative because we want to make sure that people are deciding things and moving quickly and making progress, but that other people on the team know what's going on so they can pick up that work and run with it. And then the fourth one, sort of the acknowledgement that culture is ongoing and it's changing. And every time you hire someone, you basically have a completely new team, is that we try to be very introspective and talk about what's working for us, what's not working for us, and how we can be even better at doing what we're trying to do. So we actually had Paul English on the podcast back in episode 275. You can find that episode in the show notes or at giantrobots.fm slash 275 if you're interested. But to summarize, the discussion there was around what does it mean to be a good brand and having those values baked in from the onset being super important. Digging into that a little bit more, are there any insights that you could pass on to listeners that you've gained through this hiring process of like how to find those values in people while you're hiring? What are you specifically looking for or asking about to figure out whether someone's going to be a good fit? So I always feel like interviews should never feel like a gotcha. Like I'm not giving someone a puzzle and I'm not trying to ask them to prove something to me. I am trying to help them do as well as they possibly can because an interview to a large extent is a really contrived situation. There's some people who are good at it and like it, but there are a lot of people who just want to do their job and do a good job and interviewing isn't what they're there for. Yeah, I guess it's like taking a test back in school. Some people test well and some people don't. Right. And I've always felt lucky that I do, but that doesn't necessarily, like, I don't want to only hire people who do well at that. That's weird. So what I try to do is I try to get the candidate talking about something they've worked on that they've cared about. And I try to hear how those things come out in the stories. So that might be a recent project that they felt had a big impact. And so then if a candidate has a hard time saying something had a big impact or not, like that might mean they're not really thinking about if their work is impactful. And that might not necessarily make sense on the type of team we have. Or as they get into the story, I might start pushing more on what their particular role in the project was, what they felt like key decision points were, how those decisions came about. I might dig into when you've disagreed with a coworker at some point, how did you work through that disagreement together? Because that tells me a little bit about how they think about making decisions and how they work with other people. I ask people if they were going back to the beginning of the same project again, what they would do differently, which tells me a little bit about their learning style and did they learn from the project and kind of gets to that introspective value that we have. And so I'm basically just trying to get the candidate to tell me what they think shows well about them or just tell me the story of what they've been excited to build. Those are some great tips. Mm -hmm. What makes Dark different than other functional languages? So Dark is definitely different from other functional languages. And I guess at the beginning, I explained the problems Dark was solving without actually explaining what Dark is. So Dark is a programming language which has its own editor, which then has an infrastructure compiler that sets up infrastructure in real time as you're writing a backend function. And so to give you an idea of what that actually feels like, if I were to open Dark, I could make a handler, which would be an API endpoint for Hello World. And I could basically just specify it's an HTTP endpoint, it is a git call, and then I can say hello world, and then it's up and running, and you can see it at home 10 seconds later. And so there's those three major components to what Dark is doing. And so in one way, it's different than a functional language because it has its own editor and it has this whole infrastructure compiler piece, and neither of those would be in a language. I would say the other part that's perhaps interesting about the language is that we can build in a bunch of concepts that we normally think about as being separate software. So in Dark, you get version control as you are writing. 
And so we have a full undo redo stack for everything you have done in your code and you can version that. Or similarly, one of the reasons we believe in having this deployless environment is because we in modern software development have both deployment and we have feature flagging, which are really fundamentally the same thing. They're saying, I only, I want to ship this thing to a specific subset of the population or to a percentage or to a specific person or to a specific environment. And so feature flags can be considered part of the language within Dark, which isn't something you would get in any other programming language. So it sounds like there's a lot of familiarity there for folks coming over from other existing functional programming languages with a lot of niceties of having your editor wrapped into it. Yeah. And we've tried to make it, I know there's some reputation around functional programming languages, and I think there are some concepts that work really well and are actually quite intuitive. And I think there's some things that end up making them seem scarier than they are. And so one of the things we have done with our languages, we've also tried to use syntax that feels comfortable to most programmers. So there's a lot of things in Dark that end up feeling much more like JavaScript, for instance. What's been your biggest surprise in the process so far? So I think one early on was definitely how in-depth you can go with making a programming language and all of the different aspects of it. And as someone who had consumed programming languages for a long time, I thought of them much more as being this unmutable thing that I was using as the end user that a community to some extent was maintaining and had big deal versions and was pretty removed from me. And so I think that first big adjustment was saying, oh, this is all completely mutable the same way another product would be. I think that was really interesting. Paul, my co-founder, had spent a lot of time designing specific programming languages before that, didn't really go through that same transition. So that was more me-specific. I think after that was how much we could learn from peeling off narrow slices and how different it was to peel off narrow slices of a programming language than it was to do that for a consumer product. So at the beginning, we actually had a programming language, and all it did was shift letters. So you could kind of have a a string, and then you could say, I want to shift every letter to the left four, so E becomes A. And even just building that little chunk of a programming language, which doesn't require very many language features, doesn't require very much at all, really, was enough to test things on. And I thought that was interesting. Whereas before, with my worldview of, oh, these are monolithic, was we would have to build everything to be able to test anything. And that definitely wasn't the case. Yeah. Building your own programming language from scratch seems like such a huge undertaking. So it's interesting to hear where you started with that first function. Yeah. And then I think after that, some of the things that have been surprising are how cool certain things are. So one of the things that's nice about being hooked up to your production database is you can see real values that are hitting your production website while you're building. And I knew that I would always enjoyed front-end development because I could see what happened in real time. And there's like something satisfying about playing with your CSS or like using the browser tools to debug something. And I never realized how frustrating it was that backends didn't have that until I had it. And now when I use a programming language that isn't dark, um, I built a script recently using Google Apps Script to send myself email book recommendations from a spreadsheet. And I sent myself like 17 test emails trying to get my formatting right. Whereas in dark, I could have just seen that in my editor and it wouldn't have been this 17 email process. And what so far has been easier than you expected? I found that I have selective memory loss where in retrospect, everything seems like it's always been great. But we've definitely had things that were challenges and I think we've definitely also had things that went better. I think it would have been easy to get lost in the model we had with the graph that felt more visual for too long. I think it would have been easy to kind of like get stuck there and spend a lot of time trying to get that perfect. And I actually feel really good that we did that for a short period of time and then said, okay, let's try another approach and see where that gets us. And that second approach ended up feeling much better. 
Um, I think the other one is actually having customers use it. And so like it's an early product. We're still individually letting people on, like I said. And there are moments where I'm playing with it and I get really frustrated that I don't have something. Recently, one was Unicord support where I was the first person who tried to build a project that used a bunch of emojis. And so I just got to a thing where we, we didn't support Grapheme split and there's no way for me to fix that easily. And so like, I get really bogged down in things like that, but most of our customers don't need any one of those given things, which gives us time to fix it as the customer goes, which has been helpful. And I think understanding that we could add those things incrementally was definitely good. What's been the biggest benefit from having customers live testing in the beta phase? Like, What have you gotten back from active beta user testing? There's so many things that we've learned from our customers. I think one of the best days I had was one of our early customers started using it for all of their side projects and started inventing more side projects they could do just to use dark more. And I think starting something is hard and there's like days that are good and days that are bad. And just knowing that you've made something that someone likes enough to be like, I'm going to use this for everything. That's a really great moment. And I think having them around provided more of those moments, which are really motivational for the team. So I think culturally it was great for sure. And same thing, reinforcing the value of being impactful and doing work for customers. I think another one is just finding stuff we might not have found otherwise and having to care a lot about it. So there was a time where part of Google Cloud went down, which took down part of our infrastructure. And we like having a customer meant that we knew that and we had pager duty and it woke us up. And then we were all like, oh, no, this thing has happened. How do we fix it so this won't happen again? <laughs> that is an actual emergency. Yeah. Um, and I think getting those out of the way early when they're relatively minor emergencies and it's a couple of customers and you know when they need things and you know kind of what their expectation level is, is really helpful. So that's definitely a big chunk of it. And then I think also just the day-to-day being able to watch someone use the editor. Like programmers are really particular about their editors. And I think being able to see how it's actually getting used and where people are working around or how they're kind of hacking things you wouldn't have expected in your editor gives you a lot of ideas about what features are important to build next. Yeah, there's always the argument of Vim or Emacs. How do you fit in a world where folks have such strong loyalty to their editor? So I think there's two pieces of this for me. One is that I think when we make programming easier, we help a lot more people become developers. And so we're seeing a lot more people want to become developers, go to a boot camp, starting to study CS in undergrad, whatever it is, or just start to do a project on their own. And so I think part of it is we have this large chunk of people who aren't as set in their ways. And I think the other part is that we actually do see change over time. Like VS Code was not really on the map, I would say, a few years ago. And now tons of people are using it. Or before that, like Adam was another new editor and people did adopt it. So you're always going to get the people who are diehard. I will never leave Emacs. But you're also going to get the people who want to try the latest and the greatest. So what makes Dark a great first programming language? Ooh, This is interesting. So I actually don't think of myself as being the world's greatest programmer, and I like programming in dark. So I think one piece of it is that you can work with real-time data side by side, and being able to work with that means you can actually see what's going on, which is really important. I think another piece of it is the fact that dark is structured means that you're not just staring at a blank screen. Like, I will definitely open up my terminal and be like, what am I supposed to type now? Whereas in dark, I can at least open an autocomplete and start going, okay, I have all these options. How do I think about it? What type of object am I trying to work with? How do I work with my type system? And it kind of gives me more to hang off of to be able to do that, which I think has been really helpful. And then I think another thing about it is if you're coming into dark first, you're not going to have this mental model of do I think about the world object oriented or do I think about the world functional? Or you won't have this hurdle of like, oh, no, I'm having to make this shift. You actually are just starting with some of these concepts from the beginning. What does your overall roadmap look like? What's like the next year look like for Dark? 
So like I was saying, we're building things incrementally as customers need them. So I think right now there are a lot of key features we're adding to the language, we're adding to the editor, we're thinking about for the underlying infrastructure that we really want to have before we would make it widely available. And so then in parallel with like that set of development and to help us prioritize that set of development is really onboarding individuals who have something that's a great fit right now. And to give a better idea of what that is, it could fall in a few buckets. So Dart can be used to build any individual microservice. So if you're looking at doing a new project within your existing architecture, Dart is usually a great fit for a quick backend for that. It's also good for standalone projects. If you don't want to spend a ton of time configuring your backend, we did syncing feature for my friend Elliot's side project app, No Zero Days. I've used it for some of my side projects for backend sync type functionality or being able to track device IDs rather than just storing everything on the device. So those sorts of projects also work really well for Dark, and we're always looking to find people who have something in that bucket to bring them on board. What other trends do you see going on right now that you feel Dark is either a good complement for or an alternative to? Yeah, there's a few things that I'm really excited about right now. So one is that we're trying to make programming more accessible to people. And I think there are a couple of companies that are doing really great work in that direction, like Glitch and like Repolit, who are really working on taking existing languages and putting them in the browser in a way that's responsive, where you can feel like you get that win right away. And I think of that as sort of being us bringing some of the great experiences from, say, MIT Scratch, which was a learning language, to more professional tooling. And I think that's really exciting. Similarly, I think we're seeing a lot of tools pop up for getting from design to better front ends. So things like Haiku, things like PageDraw, where they're really trying to turn Photoshop or Sketch or Framer or Figma files into good front end JavaScript components. So I think that's been really interesting. And then I also think we're seeing a lot around programmable infrastructure or not having to worry as much of your infrastructure, like serverless and trends like that. And so when I really think about Dark, I think I'm really excited about all three of those trends. And we really want to fit into that ecosystem in a way where it's not like we're just making one chunk of things easier. It's that we're playing nicely with everything to make the entire experience of building a backend and setting up your infrastructure easier. So you had mentioned that if people think Dark may be a good fit for one of the projects they're working on, they should get in touch with you. What's the best way for them to do that? So you can always email me directly. I'm Ellen at DarkLang, D-A-R-K. L-A-N-G dot com, or I'm on Twitter, is at Ellen Shiza, and happy to talk to people. Or, of course, there's a little bit more on our website if you're curious to learn more, and that's darklang.com. Ellen, thank you very much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm, and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.